Even though you would sometimes disagree with him, he would listen. There are things that we can be doing right now to have open dialogue, to get public input, and to be able to make solid decisions for the state of Alaska. You know, politics, Mr. President, in my estimation, is a character test. I'm Mike Mason, and welcome to another edition of the Empty Office podcast from the office of Senator Lukey Yeltobin. So we are joined today by one of my uh, favorite people, and I'll explain kind of why uh, Senator Bill Wilikowski is one of my favorite people. Uh, for some of you out there, you might uh, you might remember, uh, I was a, uh, a journalist for many years. Uh, I worked in, in Homer and in, in Dillingham, and uh, Senator Wilikowski was one of the few people that you could call on short notice, and he would take your call and answer your questions. I don't remember Bill ever dodging one of my questions. Uh, so, uh, uh, Senator Wilikowski, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. I remember those days. I remember your calls from Dillingham, and uh, I always enjoyed your interviews. You're always well-prepared and uh, always ask great questions. So before I kind of get into some of the stuff that I wanted to talk about, I want to talk about the Alaska Press Corps, the Capitol Press Corps. So you've been around since, what was the, when we were elected, it was B. So I got elected in 2007. Okay. So you, 2006 started in 2007. So you remember kind of some of those old school oh, yeah. reporters. Oh yeah. It's not the same, is it? It's a little different, but first let me, let me uh, offer official public congratulations to Luki Tobin. <laughs> Thank she, you. She, it is such a joy to serve with her. She has, brings just great energy to this building and she's got good ideas and she's smart and what a great addition. I'm just so glad you're here, Loki. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Anyway, Capital, Capital Press Corps. Yeah, it's, cha it's changed a little bit. I mean, there's nowhere near the numbers that we used to have. But back in the day, we had people like uh, Greg Erickson. You had people like Bob Tkach. They were just pit bulls, fearless, uh, asked uh, uh, great questions, uh, weren't afraid to follow you into your office. And, and uh, I'll never forget, actually, um, Greg Erickson one time. He, uh, we, we took a little break we were in the Senate resources hearing and we took a little break, uh, during the middle of a hearing and we actually went into the lounge just, just for a minute and came back. Bob Tkach came down to my, or not Bob, uh, Greg Erickson came down to my office and he slaps a tape recorder down on the table and he starts interrogating me. What, what were you talking about in the lounge <laughs> with, with the rest of the people and from, uh, from the committee? And we were like, genuinely, we weren't talking about anything. We just took a break for a couple minutes to go in the lounge. But it was, uh, they were pretty aggressive and they asked hard hitting questions. I, I remember distinctly that uh, Bob Tkach would be very helpful because I would call in and I would only get one question. And so I could ask my one question, but I never got a follow up. And Bob would often ask my follow up. I didn't have to ask him, he would just know what the follow up question would be. And he would ask that follow up question. And it was almost always what I used in the, in the story because it was a good question kind of thing. So yeah, Bob was legendary. He was legendary, fearless, great reporter. Uh, we miss him. How do you deal with the press now in your new, uh, in your new role? If for those that don't know, Senator Wilikowski is the Rules Committee Chair for the new Alaska Senate Majority uh, Caucus. And um, that's a different role than, the, than your previous roles in the minority. So how do you deal with the press now? It's not that much different. You know, the press has a job. Their job is to go out and just report on what's happening in the building. And they're going to go to whatever sources they can to get information that's, you know, credible and reliable. And they're just trying to do their job. And so I've always tried to have good relationships 
relationships with members of the press and respect that they're doing their job. And um, so I, I don't think it's that it's that much different. I, you know, certainly we're having press conferences now, which hadn't happened in for years because of COVID. And then I think there was just this tendency that happened in the building where just there weren't press conferences anymore. So, so that's a big change. And, and I know the reporters really appreciate that. There's a lot more transparency. There's a lot more of us getting out there and answering questions that they have. People stop by the office pretty regularly from the press corps. And so, you know, happy to answer any of their questions if I have time. And I always try to make time to do that. So I want to ask about the uh, the new uh, majority in the Senate that both Senator Wilkowski and Senator Tobin are part of. I've heard a little bit about the origin story, about how it came together. I will say the day that I heard that it was 17 members, I was like, no way. It's, that's How did you do that? So how did you do it? So when I first got elected in 06, we had not had a, a bipartisan or a Democratic members in the, in the majority in, in large numbers for years. I mean, it was decades. And, and so what had happened back in 2006 was you had a split with the Republicans there. They, it was 11 Republicans, nine Democrats, exactly what it is now, but they couldn't agree on leadership. They were just split very similar to what we are uh, now in the legislature. And so uh, what happened was kind of similar to what happened now. We had nine uh, Democrats and six Republicans. So it was 15 to five. And that lasted for six years, and people predicted, oh, that would never last. It was great. It was, it was I, I think, a golden era in Alaska politics. We um, passed a lot of great pieces of legislation, worked in a bipartisan fashion. This time around, it was kind of similar. You know, in the last few years, we had, the uh, as Democrats, we with Senator Begich, Tom Begich, as our uh, minority leader, he did a great job of working with the majority because they needed our votes. They couldn't pass a budget on their own. And so we became really a de facto members of the majority. They could not pass the budget. They couldn't pass substantive pieces of legislation really without us. And so we were effectively in the majority. We just didn't have the titles. And so when we, we ended up picking up a couple members through, through this last election cycle and then redistricting, and then it was 11-9 again. And the discussion started like literally the last day of the session last year. I got phone calls from people talking about, okay, what's the next majority going to look like? And so those discussions continued in earnest uh, for months. And then once we got closer to the election, discussions heated up, people sort of had an idea how the elections would turn out. And then after the, after the elections um, occurred in November, yeah, we just sat down and a lot of phone calls. I think I spent probably, probably 10 days straight on the phone, probably 10, 12 hours a day, just talking with, you know, members of the Democrats in the Democratic group, members in the Republicans, calming some fears. There were, you know, concerns on both sides uh, about certain people and about, you know, how would we do this? And just reassuring people that, look, we've done this before. We know how to do this. And if you look at people that are in leadership this this go around, it's it's a lot of people who were in leadership who uh, the last go around, who were in this bipartisan majority from 2007 to 2012. So we know how to do this. We know how to make this work. And it did work very well. And so, yeah, it was just, it was communication. It was just sitting down, talking, communicating, and and reassuring people that, look, this this is what people want. People want us to work together. They want us to get things done. And it's worked fantastic so far. One thing I was really impressed with, uh, and I think folks don't have a good appreciation for is how hard this work really is, and particularly watching those early days of the negotiation, 
with you particularly listening to you uh, chat on the phone when I would stop into your office or talk to you later in the day and you had told me that you would receive text messages at 6.30 in the morning, that this work is all-encompassing and it's almost 24 hours. You really don't get a break, particularly after the election ends and now comes the real work, the, the work of group formation and finding common ground and moving forward on it. So the election happened and then you're right, literally, you know, I think people were out till midnight or so waiting for the results to come in and at election events. And then literally 6.20 in the morning, the next day I started getting texts from people, you know, people asking me what's going on. I want to be in the majority. I want to be Senate president. I want to be this and that. I I would like to say for the record, I never asked for Senate president, (laughs) nor rules chair, or a seat on finance. I very much understood that I was a freshman coming into this. But you got a great position in education. It's really one of the most important positions, quite frankly, this whole session. And it's doing a lot of important work, and you're doing a fantastic job. And I've heard that from many, many people in the building. Oh, well, thank you. I I would like to say that it's because I have a great team. Uh, Mike and I worked on the Alaska Reads Act together, and knowing that you have quality folk who are there supporting you in, in your endeavors is a key part of being able to be successful in this work. Yeah, I don't think people, many people outside this building realize how important staff are. Like, we just you can't do this job without great staff, and you do have great staff. I want to ask about uh, being a Democrat. Uh, we're all Democrats here uh, for essentially my entire time in the legislature, I've worked for, uh, in one way or another, Chris Tuck, who I consider a fabulous Democrat, even though he's, he's slightly unusual for some Democrats. And uh, for the past few years, uh, Rep. Tuck has been the highest ranking Democrat in the state. And that has been taken over now. Uh, uh, Mary Paltola would be considered the highest ranking Democrat, but you would be the highest ranking Democrat in state government because you are now in leadership in the Senate and you're the rules committee chair, which is a, a, a high ranking leadership position. First of all, what does it mean to be a Democrat in a place like Alaska? And what does it mean to be kind of the highest ranking Democrat in the state? Is it, do you think about that? No, I I actually don't. But uh, I think it just goes to show that anybody can accomplish anything. (laughs) Uh, Kids in high school, you can uh, uh, dream big because uh, I never would have envisioned myself where I am today. You know, as far as being a Democrat or or being a Republican, I think people in Alaska, I mean, there's definite partisans on both sides. But I think we have probably a much higher percent of nonpartisans, independents than any other state in the country. In fact, we may be the highest in the country. And I think what people ultimately want is they want legislators who will just get things done. This is the vast majority of Alaskans. You have your partisans. There's no doubt. But I think people, you know, potholes, we, we like to say potholes aren't Republican or Democrat. and They don't care. You know, there's no Republican or Democrat solution to fixing your potholes and getting your streets plowed. And, you know, we, we can have different policy disputes. But by and large, you know, about 90 percent of everything we vote on is unanimous in, the, in this building. But there are definitely policy rubs. There are definitely things where we disagree and we have slightly different philosophies. But, but in the end, people just want us to get things done. And so, um, you know, I look at my district and I have more Republicans than Democrats. I think there's probably, I don't know, 20 or 25 percent more Republicans than Democrats in my district. In order to win, I, I have to get Republicans to vote for me. I have to get independents to vote for me. And I put out, you know, I just try to be true to myself and 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 what I think uh, is in the best interest of my constituents. And 
and they keep sending me back. So I guess I'm doing the right thing. So I want to turn to one of the issues that uh, that you are you are known for and uh, that you've been fairly passionate about and very consistent about, and and that is that we uh, exist in a in a state that has a kind of a fundamentally flawed oil tax structure at the moment. Um, first of all, do you agree that we have a fundamentally flawed oil tax structure? And can you give us the quick pitch as to how we can fix it? And do you think there is the political will? to address any of those issues uh, in today's current political environment. Well, you know, I could talk about oil taxes for hours. Please don't. (laughs) I I hope you do. (laughs) So I don't, I don't, um, uh, but, but here's what I'll say on that. You know, it's probably one of the bigger frustrations that I've had as a legislator is, is just the issue of oil taxes. And, and I think this is one of those that has unfortunately got wrapped up in, in labeling. You know, I, I, and, and, you mentioned about being a Democrat and I, I just found it fascinating. I, I do a lot of door knocking and I've knocked in all my elections on, on probably around 35, 36,000 doors, knock on a lot of doors every election. And I'll, I'll knock on people's doors and, and I'll, occasionally I run into someone who'll say, man, I, I love what you stand for. You know, I love the fact that you're fighting for fair oil taxes. And I love the fact that you're, you know, standing up on, on these various issues and, you know, price gouging and, and, uh, you know, uh, utility rate increases and this and that. But I can't vote for you because you're a Democrat. Like every now and then I'll get that. And that just kind of shocks me because, um, it, it, you know, I think um, I, I don't think that's the way most Alaskans think. But 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 the reason I say that is because the issue of oil taxes is really not a Republican or a Democratic issue. We as a state of Alaska, a very unique constitution. We are the owner of our resources. We're the only state in our country where we actually own the subsurface rights. You go to Texas, North Dakota, you find oil on your land, all of a sudden you're a millionaire, you're maybe a billionaire. In Alaska, the subsurface rights belong to the entire people of Alaska, the state of Alaska. And so, you know, different Republican governors have framed this over the years, you know, somewhat differently. But you can go back and and look at um, Wally Hickel, for example. He coined, he referred to us as the owner state. And he referred to the the governor as, you know, the ranch hand and the legislators were like the board of directors. And, uh, and we have an obligation to go out and get the maximum benefit for the resource. You can look at Governor Jay Hammond, another Republican, who, who said uh, when asked about how much we should tax the oil industry, he talked about us getting a third, a third, a third. He talked about uh, getting as, you know, squeezing every last penny that you can. I mean, that's our job. Our job as legislators is to follow the Constitution, get the maximum value for our resource. And so... When I see where we are right now, and I see we're in a situation where we have a tax structure that allows for, just a few examples, $1.3 billion per year in deductible oil tax credits, another $1.2 to $1.5 billion per year in net operating loss tax credits, another $120 million because there's this loophole in our corporate tax structure that allows an outside oil company owned by one billionaire in Texas to not pay corporate income taxes. That costs us $120 million per year. Last year, we had another $409 million in refundable oil tax credits. So, you know, a billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking pretty serious money, right? And so this has been a frustration for me. Uh, I think these things, uh, I think there are things that we can fix, you know, and and I recognize uh, that I have to be pragmatic about this. I'm probably not, I probably wouldn't get what, necessarily I would 
want and, and think is in the best interest of the state. But but I think there's I think there's definitely room for compromise here, and I think there's room for us to really capture back a significant amount of money in a way that, quite frankly, won't hurt the industry one bit. In fact, we've had testimony from the Dunleavy administration that you can pretty significantly cut oil tax credits by around 450 to $500 million, and it won't impact investment. We had testimony from our independent um, independent uh, experts that we fired over the years, just last year, who testified, you can cut oil tax credits, same amount, 450 to $500 million, and it won't impact investment. You know, $450, $500 million, that's a lot of money. We've had people tell us, there's absolutely no reason that uh, Hillcorp shouldn't be paying any corporate income taxes. Uh, when every other oil ind- company pays corporate income taxes. And uh, BP, when they own the fields, they paid corporate income taxes. That's $120 million right there. You've pretty much solved with those two things, your fiscal gap. So I think there are solutions. I think there are reasonable solutions. And I, this is not a Republican or Democratic idea by any means. This is quite frankly following in the footsteps of two Republican governors, Governor Hickel and Governor Hammond. And I think uh, you know, at some point this became a partisan issue, and I, I just I just think that's really unfortunate. One thing I really appreciate about our Senate majority is listening to my colleagues' passion. I am always amazed with hearing you speak about oil tax credits, sometimes late at night on the floor of the Senate with visual aids, but it just inspires me and reminds me of how much we all love Alaska and how much we're fighting for Alaska. It's not about being a D or being an R or having a partisan approach. Almost exclusively, it's about what we think is our fair share, what we think is our best way forward, and what we think is our responsibility to those who elected us. And that's what I enjoy about listening to you speak about oil tax credits. Well, and and there's nothing more critical. You know, there... we, we, you'll hear this saying many times in the legislature, and I, I've heard it attributed to various people, but don't tell me what your values are. Show me what your budget is, and I'll tell you what your values are. And the way I would equate this is, let's say you're, you're a family, and you're making $100,000 per year, and you have enough to pay your mortgage and save a little bit and buy books for your kids and pay for you know food and maybe a night out and, and uh, fuel and, and you know the costs of living. But then you go to your boss and you say, hey, you know what? Um, instead of that $100,000 a year you've been paying me all these years, just give me $25,000 per year. That's literally what we did in the state of Alaska by cutting oil taxes as drastically as we did. And then all of a sudden, wow, you can't pay your mortgage. You can't pay your heating bill. You can't pay for your kids' education costs. And um, you, know, you can't pay for college. And so this is exactly what we did. This, in my opinion, is the biggest issue that we face as a state is because how are we going to fund this? So, so here's how we have funded it in recent years. Um, we've cut the dividend. And this is why I'm so passionate about the dividend because I live in a low-income area, Muldoon. I've represented Mountain View. I represent a part of a lot of your district, uh, Russian Jack. These are a lot of people who are a very low end of the income scale. They're scraping by. They have uh, multiple jobs. They have um, you know kids that they're trying to take care of. They're just trying to scrape by. And what we're what we've ended up doing in recent years is cutting the dividend by a thousand dollars or, or more, a couple thousand dollars. And, and, and when you turn around and you look at the, 
oil tax credits. You know, to 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 pay one point three billion dollars in deductible oil, just one of the types of oil tax credits, deductible oil tax credits. That's the equivalent of every man, woman, and child in the state of Alaska giving up two thousand dollars of their permanent fund dividend check. So that has that's why I am so passionate about the dividend and so passionate about fixing oil taxes. It's not because I'm anti oil company. Boy, I, I've been pushing for this Willow resolution. I want to see more oil go down the pipeline. I want to see more responsible production. I just want to see Alaskans get the benefit from these things and be able to afford the things that we need, a good education system, a good university system, snow plowing, a marine highway system, you know, a dividend. I, I think it's great that we have a dividend. That's we, have, we bring tens of thousands of Alaskans out of poverty every single year with a permanent fund dividend. So I think we've, uh, you know, it's something that we need to preserve. And that's why I'm so passionate about these things. It's fun being from rural Alaska. I often hear the... The names of legislative legislators, legislators who I wouldn't think that people from my hometown of Nome know, and your name comes up very frequently because everyone knows how passionate you are about something that helps all of them heat their homes or all of them make sure they have food on the table. And it, it just makes me really excited to work with you. I want to make two observations about the, the oil tax d- discussion. Um, one, I was around covering. I was a reporter at the time. And I remember the promises that were made at the time that were essentially a sales pitch. And those promises, none of which have been kept. Um, And we can talk about what those promises are. The other observation I will make is that essentially Alaska has faced fiscal uncertainty and fiscal challenges from the moment SB 21 went into effect. We immediately almost went into a recession the moment that uh, that bill took effect. And we have been dealing with the aftermath of that every day since. And it seems like that perhaps we were not told the truth and we were not given a fair deal at the time. I have the flyers. And, and I remember I was going around the state debating the issue. And I remember the flyers that said uh, vote to... Uh, to keep the oil tax cuts and you'll get more jobs, more revenue to the state, grow the PFD, uh, more investment, more production. In fact, it was named the More Alaska Production Act. And you can go through every single one of those, like you said. Production has dropped from uh, over 600, roughly 600,000 barrels a day to under 500,000 barrels per day. So we got less production, more revenue. The bill went from 2013 to 2014. The price of oil was identical. It was around $107 in those two years. And production was fairly similar. In fact, I think production actually ticked up a little bit in 2014. But midway through 2014, I believe, is when, or fiscal year 2013, is when SB 21, the oil tax cut bill, went into effect. The state lost $1.6 billion in six months from the passage of that bill. Uh, So we've lost billions of dollars in revenue to the state. That's not a surprise. And which led, I I don't think it's a surprise that we, this bill is passed in 2013, and then in 2016 is when the governor vetoes the dividend because we don't have the money. We can't, and, and so you've, you've got to find another revenue source, and sure enough, it's been the dividend. So, so we had less production. We had less revenue in the state. Jobs, the peak number of jobs in the history of the state of Alaska occurred in August of 2014, which just so happened to be the month that Alaskans were going to vote on whether or not to 
uh, keep these oil tax cuts in place. And the oil industry was out there running ads saying, oh, got to keep these cuts in place. Look at all the jobs on the North Slope. Well, three weeks later, and it was 15,800, three weeks later, the headline front page of the Anchorage Daily News read, uh, BP to lay off 475 employees. And this was at a time when oil's over $100 per barrel in the 90s. And uh, it was like, oops, we forgot to mention that we were going to lay, you know, right after the initiative passed or failed, we were going to lay off all, all these people. And then there's been a steady decline ever since then. We've gone from 15,800 employees down to around 7,000. So we've got half the number of employees. We've got uh, investment has plummeted. You know, we, in Prudhoe Bay uh, two years ago, um, uh, the, the, we, we got some information from Department of Revenue. Uh, they invested, uh, well, rather, the, the, they invested $86 million in capital investment in Prudhoe Bay a couple of years ago. And for that $86 million in capital investment, they got $750 million in tax breaks. Is that a good deal? Is that, is that following our maximum oblig- obligation to get the maximum of value for our resource? I don't think it is. And, and so, yeah, it's things like this that I, I just don't think Alaskans know. And then, of course, save the PFD. You know, that was, that was the mantra two years ago when, when uh, Robin Brenner ran his, his initiative was, well, we're going to keep the all-tax structure in place and save the PFD. And how's that been working out? So, so yeah, it's been, it's been frustrating, but, you know, the public has voted for it. And, and al- although I, I do think the public is saying they want us to address it in the legislature. And, and um, so, you know, keep my hopes up. As we look forward from this point on uh, in the 2023 session, what's your mood? What, what do you think? Is, is it is it all going to work out? Are things going to going to the dysfunction going to go away and everything's going to work out? Or are, what challenges still lie ahead uh, in the next say sixty to ninety days? Oh, I'm still very optimistic. I, I think we we have a great group. We're we're working collaboratively. We're working together, and we're working on education issues. We're working on you know just really critical issues on you know the budget. Again, it's just just absolutely critical. So I'm I'm very optimistic about the about our organization. I'm very optimistic about the future of Alaska. We've got billions of dollars in federal money coming in. We've got 2.6 billion dollars in infrastructure money coming from the feds. We've got another several billion dollars in broadband money coming in. We've got another billion dollars coming in from Marine Highway. Uh, we don't have enough people to man these jobs or woman these jobs, and so. So we need, you know, we, we just have this tremendous opportunity in this state, and I'm hopeful that we can increase, you know, start incre- uh, increasing our education funding. I'm hopeful that we can get a, a, you know, a pension system back for our employees so that they don't leave Alaska and they'll stay here and be able to retire with dignity. But, yeah, I'm very optimistic. Senator Tobin, over a month in, are you still optimistic? I am more optimistic today than I was earlier this week. I forgot how it ebbs and flows, the conversations you have, the highs you come off of, and then the reminder that it takes work to build a coalition to collaborate with others. And today was a good day of finding synergy with individuals who I have opposing views with, but I'm willing to find common ground. So I'm going to ask my final question, and it is kind of an odd question. And I've changed the question a little bit from the way I've asked it earlier. Senator Wilikowski, if you could choose one person, dead or alive, and make them a member of the Alaska State Legislature in 2023 and drop them in here to help us out, who would that be? I've served with so many amazing people over the years, from Senator Betty Davis, who uh, 
call the conscience of the legislature. I'm proud that my daughter goes to Betty Davis East High these days. Senator Hollis French, just an amazing warrior. Senator, Representative Lescara was tenacious and smart. I think the one person I'd pick, uh, I mean, I'd take all of them back, quite frankly. Um, but, but if I had to pick one, it would probably be Senator Johnny Ellis. And I think about Johnny all the time because he was so smart and so passionate and so pragmatic. And he was the rules chair when we had the bipartisan coalition the last couple of years. And he did such an amazing job of smoothing over differences and helping get legislation passed. And I just really, uh, he passed away uh, not too long ago. And and I I think about him all the time. And I I just wonder, I, I wish I had the opportunity to talk with him about you know, the things that happen as rule cha- rules chair and the strategy and, and how you deal with the issues that pop up and um, because he was amazing at it. So, yeah, if I had to pick one person, it'd be Senator Johnny Ellis. You've been listening to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gale Tobin. You can subscribe to the podcast on Substack and the Apple podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave a positive review which will help spread the word. I'm Mike Mason. Please be safe out there.